If you've been watching with us over the past few months, you'll know we've been studying through the book of Philippians, a letter the Apostle Paul wrote to a church that lived, existed almost 2,000 years ago in what's modern-day Greece. And when we were looking at it last week, we talked about a really big question. We talked about what is the meaning of life? And the conclusion we came to, or that Paul gave us, is that the meaning of life is knowing Jesus, knowing Jesus. Well, it's easy to say that, but we may wonder, well, what does that look like? What does it look like to know Jesus in my life? What kinds of things do I do so I can know Him? What is the result? Where is this kind of life going? What are we living for? Well, today we'll find out that a life that's about knowing Jesus is a life that is headed for heaven. And so what we're doing is, as Tao says, we're pressing on towards home. If our life is about knowing Jesus, then we will press on towards our heavenly home. And so let's take a look at this journey. Again, Paul is winding down his letter. We're getting closer and closer to the end of the book. This is a book where he's calling the people in Philippi, the Philippians, to rejoice and grow together. Rejoice together and grow together. Rejoice in what God has done for them and grow to know Jesus more. Even when they're far apart, even when they can't see each other, they can still rejoice and grow together. Today's passage is what that practically looks like. What does it look like to rejoice and grow as we're headed toward our eternal home? Paul has just said in the last part we read last week that his goal is to know Jesus and to attain a final resurrection from the dead. And now he says this, I'm going to be reading from Philippians chapter 3, verse 12, and I'm going to read through chapter 4, verse 1. Now these numbers and letter, these numbers that are there, they weren't there in the original version of this. They were added much later, so you would have kept reading. So it's okay to put chapter 4, verse 1 with this section. So I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. Philippians 3, verse 12. Apostle Paul writes, just said, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. And now he says, not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on because Christ Jesus has me his own. Brothers, brothers and sisters, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we have attained. Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many, of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame, with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is, is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm. Thus, in this way, in the Lord, my beloved. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this time we have in your word. God, I pray that as we look at this passage, we will be inspired to press on toward our heavenly home. May you keep us motivated, keep us pursuing you, knowing you more and more every day. God, if anyone doesn't know you, I pray you would show them that their home, God, that their home is here on earth, it's far from you. And I pray they would come to know you by faith. And for those who do know you, God, pray that you remind us that our home is with you and it is the home we should live for. Lead us to stand firm, to trust in you, Jesus. It's in your name that I pray. Amen. So Paul starts by saying that if we know Jesus, we should live our life by pressing on toward the goal. Pressing on toward the goal. We must have progress in the Christian life. We must grow in spiritual maturity. We must continue to grow spiritually throughout our lives, even if we're a Christian. Paul acknowledges that he has not obtained, he's not attained to perfection. Not that I've already obtained this perfection, this resurrection, or I'm already perfect. But I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Paul is not perfect. He still sins and struggles. The achievement of a perfect resurrected body, that still waits in his future. So he knows he's imperfect. And he has a very good self-understanding. And if Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a large chunk of the New Testament wasn't perfect, then how could anyone else hope to be? When Pastor Martin Lloyd-Jones, talking about this passage, said, the people who think they have it all, that they've arrived, don't. The people who think they have it all, the people who think that they've arrived, they actually don't. And Paul realizes this wisely. He realizes he's not there. His journey is not done. That's why he presses on. He pursues after Christ to know Jesus better. He wants to make his relationship with Christ his own. He wants to lay hold of, possess Christ. Again, Martin Lloyd-Jones put it this way, the Christian is not merely a man who knows that now he's, he's been forgiven, and that's the end of it. No, no, not at all. That's merely the introduction. He has been ushered into a great treasure house. Think about it this way. Coming to know Christ is the first course of the best meal that you've ever had. A meal that never ends. So Paul presses on after this. It's valuable, it's satisfying, and he does it with the same energy that he had gave before he was a Christian. 
If you know anything about Paul, before he was a Christian, he lived to persecute the church and believers, but now he puts that energy into knowing and serving Christ. That's why every believer is to be continually growing in their faith. It's not something we stop. It's not something we quit at. Yet at the same time, while we press on, pursue Christ, Jesus, we're told, has made us His own. He has taken hold of us. He possesses us. Here we see that wonderful balance between faith and works, between God's sovereignty and our choices. We press on while we belong to Christ. Paul would put it this way in 1 Timothy 6. He says, fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called, about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. But on the other hand, Jesus says this in John 15, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide. The scholar J.A. Motyer kind of puts it together like this. We treasure the memory of our conversion when we reached out the empty hand of faith to Jesus. But behind this, making it possible, giving it reality, was the act of God who chose and took hold of us. Christ chose us, so now we press on and we choose Him every day. God chose us so that we might know Christ. Paul pursues after this goal with determination and strength. He's concentrated on it. He says in verse 13, Brothers, I do not consider I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. Kind of reminded me of how horses sometimes have blinders, or I think they're called blinkers, on the sides of their eyes to focus the horse on what is in front of it. Just like that, Paul isn't thinking about what's behind him to the side. He is focused straight ahead. And when he says here he's forgetting what lies behind, it's not that he doesn't remember it anymore. If you listen last week, Paul talked a good deal about the kinds of things he did and who he was before he came to know Jesus. He remembers who he was, but he doesn't dwell on it. He doesn't let it consume him. He remembers God's grace in the past, thanks God for it. He looks, though, for more of God's grace in his life. And that's a, a pit we can fall into sometimes. We can let past experiences keep us from growing in our faith. We hold on to dwell on, think about what's happened in the past, and not think about what God is doing in our lives next. The past is important. I'm not saying that we throw it out or kill it, but growing in our faith is even more important. And Paul wants us to be increasingly more and more like Jesus. He was willing to give up everything to make it happen. He forgot all the blessings and benefits he had before. And now he strains forward. He's reaching. He's looking for what's next in his spiritual life. There's a popular phrase people sometimes say, let go and let God. But that's not at all what Paul's talking about here. Now, when somebody says that they can't have the idea of you need to trust God, which is absolutely true. But for Paul, trusting God didn't mean that he sat back and waited for God to do something. 
No, this language here, he's pressing on. He's straining forward. He is pursuing something. As he says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul's life has a goal. It has a purpose. He is longing to receive the prize, the blessings, the rewards of the age to come. As Paul says elsewhere in 1 Corinthians 9, 23 and 24, he says, I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I might share with them in its blessings. And he explains what he means. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. He is longing to be with Christ forever. He wants to increase in his knowledge and joy of Jesus. And so to do that, he has to take words from the author of Hebrews 12. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. We do this by looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. He despised the shame, and now he is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. God has called us to an upward, a heavenly prize. Through the gospel, the good news of Jesus, we have access to it. Because of what Jesus did, he came, he lived, he died, When our sin separated us from God, he paid for it so we could be restored to God. Because of that, we're now able to enter this race. We're now qualified to chase after, pursue knowing Jesus more and more. That's why we should spend our lives chasing after this prize of knowing Jesus perfectly. And guess what? I have some good news. Because when this life is over, we get it. We get that prize. We get to be in Christ's presence and be with Him. All of this will be worth it. This isn't something that will get to the end and, oh, well, I guess that was a a waste of time. No, this is, yes, definitely, this is something worth pursuing. We can have absolute certainty about that. Again, as Paul would say, what's coming is what no eye has seen nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him. And Paul says this is the way that believers should think. He says in verse 15, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, well, God will reveal that to you. When Paul says those of us who are mature, he's using the same word when he said, I am not already perfect from verse 12. After all, Jesus said that our goal is we therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. That's from the Sermon on the Mount. Christians will want to continually grow, to chase after that perfection. We won't arrive at it on this side of eternity, but it's what we pursue. And we will arrive at it when we are with our Lord. That's why with anything going on now, Paul is trusting that God will work out any disagreements. And we can have disagreements, but eventually on the non-essentials, we have to learn to let it go, 
have the humility to move on and say, that's a non-essential. We can grow still together. Scholar Sean McDonough put it this way. Thus, Paul is saying, in effect, if you are really perfect or mature, you will realize you are not yet perfect or mature. We have not arrived and should have the humility to recognize that, and that should motivate us to pursue, to press on after Christ even more. Instead, what we should be doing, as verse 16 says, is that we should hold true to what we have attained. We should hold true to what God has done in us. We should live up to where God has brought us and where He seeks us still to grow. That means our lifestyle should be thought out. It should be well-maintained. It should be clear the direction we're going. This man was not an evangelical Christian, but Ben Franklin did have some words of wisdom here. He said, if you fail to plan, you are planning to fail. If we think we can rest on, well, God's brought me here. That's wonderful. That's great. If we stay put, we're going to backslide. If we stay put, we are going to backslide. Instead, we need to move forward, press on as Paul is talking about. If you look on the slide, there was a picture of a beach and a flag. It reminded me of when I was growing up, our family would go to a beach in New Jersey. And at least at the beaches we went to, the lifeguards would put up flags. And they put up two flags set distance down the beach. And what they wanted you to do was swim in the water between those flags. But what happened every time when you went out into the water, you would try to go right in the middle of the flags and you'd have fun swimming around. And within a few minutes, next thing you knew, you were already outside of where you were supposed to be. And so they either whistle at you or trust you to come and, and swim back to where you're supposed to be. It's the same way. If we think, well, I'm just going to stay here at this part of the water right here. I'm not moving. I'm not going anywhere. The current will take us back in a direction we don't want to go. That's why we should not slip, but consistently hold on to our purpose of pressing on after Christ. Paul will pick this up again at chapter 4 when he talks about standing firm. But for now, Paul wants the Philippians to think about where their home is, where their loyalty lies. Because who you support, who you're loyal to, that determines a lot about where you go in life. Take a little silly example. Uh, here locally to high schools that have a big rivalry football is Central Dauphin, Central Dauphin East, two schools in the same school district. Well, if you go to one of their football games, they're going to try to, particularly if you're a student, direct you to the side of the field where your team's bench is. And so you're in the stands behind your team's bench. So if you're wearing the green of CD, they'll send you one way. If you're wearing the black and white of East, they'll send you a different way. Who you're loyal to determines which way you go. Oh, and just for the record, go Panthers. But Paul here is challenging the Philippians in a much more serious, much more consequential, consequential way. He's saying, where is your home? And he gives them only two options. Your home is either on earth or your home is in heaven. In the middle of the next set of verses, verses 18 and 19, he talks about this earthly home. He says, many walk, they live, they have conduct that shows that they are enemies of Christ. It's what we all were at one time. 
Even those of us who are Christians now, at one time we didn't do what God wanted. But those who still are not following Christ, they are still enemies of Him. And this brings tears to Paul's eyes. It makes him weep. For many whom I have often told you now tell you even with tears walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Now, whether these are the people he was talking about last week, those who wanted Christians to follow Jewish practices, or whether this is just worldly people in general, their final destination is the same. He says in verse 19, their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. Paul will give a similar warning in the book of Romans chapter 16. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions, create obstacles contrary to the doctrine you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Jesus Christ, but their own appetites, their own bellies, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive." Here Paul is saying those kind of people, their end, their destiny is destruction. Because their God, what they worship and serve is their belly, their stomach, their appetite. They glory and brag in shameful things because their mind is set on the things of earth. Their whole world revolves around the here and now. They're the ones who live by the eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. All their life is based on what happens on this planet, not on what is to come. The New Testament author Jude would write about this as well. He says, These are hidden reefs at your love feast, as they feast with you without fear, shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. That's not really encouraging or comforting, but it's true. Eternal destruction comes for those who live for this world, who are unable to see beyond this life. This worshiping their belly or the appetite means that they're Worshiping and living for things like money, sex, or power. This is a warning against a self-indulgent lifestyle. A Christian life is not about what you want and what you desire, what you think is best. Because if we serve ourselves and our own interest, if we serve that first and foremost, then we're really not serving God. When we live for ourselves, we are doing what Paul says here. We are worshiping our own belly. We're worshiping our own desires, the things our body wants, rather than having our eyes on God. These people are also proud in doing things that shame God. That's kind of similar to what the prophet Isaiah talks about. He says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Now, Many will think that people who glory in their shame or who call evil good and good evil, that there's much more of that going on now than there was before. But remember, Paul's writing 2,000 years ago, and Isaiah was writing 
at least 700 years before that. The unbelieving world has always been like this, calling what God calls good evil and calling what God calls evil good. It's not new now. It's not worse now. It's what we should expect. Because as Paul says, those who live according to the flesh, according to their desires, their belly, they set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. And this is why it is so important for those of us who are Christians to share the good news. Because it's only as the gospel shines in a sinner's heart and mind, it's only then that they can see what is true and act in a way that honors God. Only faith in Jesus sets people free from the flesh. And when they have faith in Jesus, will they get a new home address. Their home now is in heaven. It's in heaven. Paul sets himself up as a contrast to these people back in verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. He's telling them to imitate, follow, pattern their lives after what he does. Keep your eyes on, note, observe those who are following in the kind of example that Paul is. He really doesn't want the Philippians to focus on himself as a person, talk about how great Paul is, but that he wants them to see his humble dependence on Jesus Christ and follow that example. As he says in 1 Corinthians 11, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. And we can learn a lot from imitating other believers. Jesus is the one we press on to know, but we can imitate somebody who's following him and learn from their example. If you're a, a regular member of East Shore, you may know that there's a, a lot of jokes I get about uh, quoting Pastor Charles Spurgeon. He was an English Baptist uh, pastor, lived about 150 years ago. Um, and so I, I like quoting him in my sermons. But the reason I do that is because there's a lot I admire about him. I want to imitate his life and example. He was passionate about preaching, explaining God's truth to his church, and he had a deep, deep love for Jesus Christ and talked about Jesus at every opportunity that he had. And so I want to imitate that. That's why I quote him, why I read what he says, so I can know Jesus better by following Spurgeon's example. But it's not just old dead guys whose example I follow. I follow, I learn from your example as well. Every week in our email midweek update that we send, we talk about those who are sharing the gospel, having opportunities to connect with friends, acquaintances, neighbors in ways they've never been able to before. And I learn from those examples. And I want to imitate those examples I know there's also small groups who are meeting together over various online platforms. And I'm so grateful for those times. I get to learn from others' experiences of how they're living for God, some things they do in their daily walk. And I get to learn from that. I get to follow that example. Paul wanted the Philippians to have good examples. 
He says a bit later in our book, Philippians 4, 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He wants the Philippians to model their life on his. He wants them to keep their eyes on the future, on Jesus. But look at Paul to see how they can practically do that. And the reason they can do that is because their citizenship is in heaven. As he says in verse 20, but our citizenship is in heaven. From it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You may remember from a couple weeks ago, we talked about how these people Paul was writing to, um, the city, Philippi, it was a special Roman colony. It meant that the people in the city who were born there were citizens of the Roman Empire. And that was a rare thing for that part of the world. And they were very proud of that, to be citizens of Rome. And that's why way back in chapter 1, Paul said, only let your manner of life be worthy. Or we talked about, that could also be translated, live as citizens worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul says, so that whether I come and see you or an absent, I may hear you are standing firm with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. It's a reminder to us, our citizenship is in heaven. That's where we belong. We're not primarily Americans, Pennsylvanians, Harrisburgians, or whatever else you want to label yourself by. If you know Jesus Christ, your primary allegiance, citizenship, is in heaven. You belong to Jesus. Again, as Paul will say in Ephesians, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints, members of the household of God. That is your home built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. That is the hope of a Christian. But is that your hope? Are you a citizen of heaven? The way that happens is by faith in Christ. Again, your sin had separated you from God. You were far from him. You didn't belong to his country, his people, or his family. But that's why he sent Jesus. Jesus lived the life we couldn't live. And by dying in our place, he provided a way for us to be a part of God's family, to be a citizen of heaven. If we turn away from our sin and rebellion against God and we trust in what Jesus has done, we get a new passport. And so much more than that, we become citizens of heaven, part of God's family. He begins to change us from the inside out. And having that hope changes everything because now we can eagerly await Christ's return. Verse 21 says, He will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by that power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. There's a transformation, a change coming for those who know Jesus. And so if you don't know him, reach out. You can reach out to me. My email here is jtoon at eshorebaptist.org or get in touch with someone about how you can know Jesus and grow closer to him during this time. As we wait for Christ's return, we're waiting for our Savior to come and save us. We're hopeless without Him. Our mind is on our home, on heaven. As Colossians 3 says, If you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, 
where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on the things that are above, not on things that are on earth. Because when Christ returns, he will transform, change our lowly, mortal, humble bodies. Right now we're imperfect. We struggle with sin, but he will remove sin and make us like his glorious body. Last week, Paul prayed that he would know Christ, know him in the power of his resurrection, share in his sufferings, become like him in his death, that by any means possible, he could attain to that change, the resurrection from the dead. A change to reveal a hidden glory. He also talks about this in 1 Corinthians. For this perishable body that we have now must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. There will be a change. So we should have hope and joy in Christ's return. We shouldn't spend our day speculating about when is it going to be? Is this thing happening, meaning it's coming right now? No, we should look forward to it and live in expectation of it. Know Jesus more and more. Be ready for it. Not worry about when it is. Jesus can make this change because he has power. He is invincible and all-powerful. And he gives that power that subjects all things to him, he gives it to us. So how should we live? What should we do? Well, Paul says in chapter 4, verse 1, Therefore, my brothers, brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. This verse is kind of a transition from chapter 3 to chapter 4, and we'll unpack a bit more about what it looks like next week. But the point is Paul is missing, he's longing for the Philippians, his brothers and sisters, and he wants them to stand firm, to stand fast, to stay true. He wants them to endure to the end, to press on in knowing Christ and press on toward their heavenly home. This will bring him joy if they do it. He said earlier in this book, even if I'm poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, if I expend everything I am, I'm glad and rejoice with you all. And as the Philippians grow spiritually, that is Paul's crowning achievement. He says in 1 Thessalonians, what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before the Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? You are our glory and joy. What he's doing here is in 4.1, he's repeating something he said earlier. We actually read this verse earlier. Paul said, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, serving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Is our life worthy? Are we standing firm in knowing Jesus and pressing on to know him more? We stand firm in the sense that we're not going back to where we were, but we also press on to know more and more of Christ, to live more and more like we will when we reach our heavenly home. So as we wait, as we're in even this crisis, this situation, we are still able to press on to know our Lord and Savior because He alone is worthy and He is the one we should know, love, 
and praise. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us a heavenly home with you. Lead us to press on to know you through your son, to know you more and more. If someone doesn't know you, I pray they'll reach out, ask, find out how they can start this journey of knowing you. For those of us who do, help us to stand firm in what you've brought us to, but to press on in knowing you and growing closer to you. Thank you that this is all possible because of your grace, your work in us, and the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. It's in his name that I pray. Amen.